0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On what is only the third state visit of his presidency, Joe Biden hosted India's Narendra Modi on a state visit that included another address to a joint session of Congress becoming only one of a handful of people ever to address the body more than once, all aimed at signaling China. Markup season accelerates with the House and Senate working on the National Defense Authorization Act as House defense appropriators do their marks and whether we'll have a supplemental for Ukraine war funding that can also help the Pentagon. The House GOP censures California Democratic Representative Adam Schiff for having the temerity to investigate former President Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection Secretary of State Antony Blinken meets with Xi Jinping in Beijing as his boss back in the United States calls the Chinese leader a dictator. This as Washington continues to work to dial down tensions between the two countries and Ukraine's offensive grinds on. uh, And indeed, some say hasn't even fully started yet as NATO prepares for its most consequential summit in a generation that will return the Atlantic Alliance to a Cold War footing and Ukraine's allies met in London, pledging billions of dollars to support the country's post-war reconstruction, including perhaps using more than $300 billion seized in Russian assets uh, to help underwrite that. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now with the Center for a New American Security and the co host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for strategic and international studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, Michael, uh, start us off as you always do. Markup uh, season is now in full tilt. Uh, House and Senate both working uh, on authorization marks. House appropriators, as you said, somewhat more politicized uh, are are, uh, in the midst of of their process as well. Bring us up to speed on where we are today that we weren't last week.
1: Uh, So as I mentioned last week, the NDAA uh, was gonna be more of a bipartisan process and the markup took place on Wednesday. Uh, started at 10 a.m ended just after midnight, which is actually early compared to some previous markups uh, it did pass overwhelmingly uh, 58 to 1. Uh, they had to sort through uh, over a thousand uh, amendments. Uh, but despite the fact that it was bipartisan, you know there were some you know some fireworks and some heated debate over times, especially when it came to the personnel issues like diversity, equity, inclusion, and critical race theory programs. I even had you know after hours of debate on this I had one of the freshmen, uh, members of the committee text me it's like, this was not what I anticipated when I got on the Armed Services Committee. We're spending more time talking about drag queens uh, and DEI than we are about guns and ammunition. Uh, but despite that, there were a lot of amendments to consider, and they did repeal uh, the DOD chief diversity officer. Uh, they barred the promotion of critical race theory. Uh, they blocked uh, any use of taxpayer dollars for, for drag shows. Uh, but there were a couple of amendments that didn't didn't succeed that would have barred funds for DEI training uh, and defunding the DoD IG for diversity and extremism. Uh, there were some COVID uh, nineteen vaccine amendments. Uh, several were adopted, uh, aiming at uh, undoing uh, the consequences uh, and reinstating troops who were booted from the services for not taking uh, the vaccine. Uh, you know, Congressman Garamendi again tried to stop the nuclear modernization program, but that that, that also failed. Um, so. And one striking amendment was uh, Congressman Golden uh, tried to add more money uh, for Ukraine, about $500 million. And that amendment did fail. Right. But Matt Gates sent a shot across the bow saying that when this bill comes to the floor, that he is going to be filing floor amendments to strip as much of know. the Ukraine money out uh, as possible from the bill. Uh, so as you mentioned, at the same time, the Senate Armed Services Committee began their markup process on Wednesday. There's goes over several days. But theirs is a closed process, so we really don't have much visibility into what's happening over there. Uh, so uh, one thing we do know is that Senator Reid, again in an attempt to stop Senator Tupperville's hold on uh, military nominations, did uh, bring up Joni Ernst's bill on, abo- on on the abortion policy for a vote. Uh, as expected, it did fail, uh, and even uh, and it is not going to move uh, Tupperville off his position. Uh, it is notable that. Uh, during the House Armed Services Committee markup, uh, the abortion policy did not come up. Uh, Smith and Rogers worked very closely to keep this uh, bipartisan process, uh, keep that out of their markup. However, it is expected to come up on the floor, so we're not in the clear yet. And there still remains some concern right. that some of the outside pro-life or pro-choice booths could key vote the bill, which could doom it from either side. Uh, now, on the appropriations process, as you mentioned and we talked about last week, that is a much more partisan process the house appropriations committee marked up in full committee the defense bill it passed out of the committee but on a partisan vote republicans voting for all democrats voting against um they they obviously they are very upset about the policy writers we talked about last week uh, betty McCollum did offer an amendment to change the abortion language that, that failed uh the bill did defund the pentagon's chief diversity officer and also had a provision uh really that aimed at preventing the pride flag from being flown on, on military bases. But there were three things that I found striking uh, in the defense appropriations markup. Uh, one was, you know, we talked about when the, the president's budget request came out that uh, for the first time, they were looking at multi-year procurements for missiles and ammunition. However, the defense appropriations bill cut that plan for multi-year missile procurement uh, and it, you know reduced missile procurement across all the military services and trimmed DoD's requests by almost two billion dollars to support those bulk purchases, uh, and the appropriators justified that move by arguing that the Pentagon hasn't shown its work, uh, that it hasn't done, uh, that they don't have a firm understanding of each program unit cost uh, and production uh, capacity. Um, at the same time, we talked last week about how the commandant had testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee about their need for additional uh, amphibious landing ships. How the uh, NDAA added funding for one. Uh, the appropriators did not add funding for the additional San Antonio-class amphibious ship. Uh, and you know, the bill overall cuts procurement by 4 billion, but increases uh RDTE by 2 billion, which really is the opposite of where we thought things were going to go this year, and kind of you know contrasts with all the concerns that the military lacks the platforms and munitions. Uh, demand for future conflicts, especially in light of all the depleted stockpiles we have and the production uh, backlogs that we have. So uh, now we move on to the Senate appropriators, and that process is moving. Uh, They uh, have not scheduled a markup date, but they have uh, allocated funding to all their committees. And what's key yesterday when they allocated the fundings to all their subcommittees, that the funding allotted to defense is $3 billion less uh, than what the House passed, and I think it's a shot across the ballot to the House that they're going to have to negotiate on all the numbers on, on the appropriations bill. Uh, but uh, senators on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, came out yesterday talking about again the need for a supplemental. Including Patty Murray, who chairs the Appropriations Committee, said that you know future spending increases could be bundled with emergency spending for Ukraine, disaster relief, you know border enforcement, other Homeland Security needs. Uh, Senator Collins echoed that, that this is not the final story. Uh, Senator Tester, who chairs the defense subcommittee, also said that this is not the last bite at the apple. But you know, again, you know, McCarthy uh, has been opposed to the idea of Ukraine supplemental, but you know, we're only in June. Uh, Senator Tester, uh, Senator Mor- Moran, Senator Murphy, others came out yesterday thinking that in the end, McCarthy will relent, but that really remains to be seen.
0: Right. Um, I, I should also point out, right, it, it's not like it's a lot of money that's going to any of these things, uh, and normally any you know i mean i don't know how many drag shows the pentagon is paying for largely any sort of social activity like that tends to be underwritten by the morale welfare recreation funds that are raised by selling t-shirts and uh, uh things like that more more often than not right i mean if it's an official event it gets covered if it's an unofficial event but anyway it's pretty extraordinary in my mind um bring, bring us up to speed uh on the supplemental and where we stand with that Um, You know, people have been trying to push it through, obviously, to be able to underwrite a lot of uh, uh, money for the department at the end of the day. What are the dynamics and how is this developing? Because it could solve at least some of the department's problems, right? I mean, there are a lot of priorities
1: that could get covered with this money that would otherwise not be. Well, look, it's it's a good question. And uh, really, in my opinion, we're nowhere on the supplemental because the administration still has not sent over their supplemental request. And you know, I know I've beat this drum before, but I think it's a miscalculation because the Republicans were asking for it, and now they can't ask for it in light of the the, the budget numbers that they've agreed to. Um, and at the same time, we see in the House on the Foreign Affairs Committee earlier this week, you know, approved a bipartisan resolution calling on the Biden administration to immediately provide a tacums to the Ukrainians, you know, to uh, they think they'll make a major difference on the battlefield. Okay, great. They want to see these weapons still flow. But at the same time, it's the House that's going to be the impediment to having weapons flow continue into next year and the future years. So they seem to be, you know, contradicting themselves. Um, The Senate is saying, you know, don't pay attention to the House. We, we, We plan to have a stop. I think that people now seem to be waiting for some kind of natural disaster that will necessitate a supplemental to begin that conversation. So hurricane season has just begun. I think that that discussion will come sometime uh, in the er- in the early fall.
0: Let me uh, quickly ask you before uh, we move on, because we're on a pretty tough uh, schedule. You mentioned Tommy Tuberville's uh, shenanigans. Just talk a little bit briefly about the Adam Schiff shenanigans, right? I mean, this is an iceberg that we've seen coming for some time. Representative Smith, obviously, running for Senate uh, in uh, California. I mean, uh, you know, f- full disclosure, he's a close personal friend of yours. You have friends on both sides of the aisles who are close personal friends of yours. What, what does this exactly mean? What does it signify? And what's the message
1: that it sends? Well, look, I think that your last point is the, the critical thing. What message does it send? I'll get to that in a second. Look, I think, um, look, in some respects, this actually helped Adam Schiff. His fundraising has never been better, uh, you know, fundraising off this, this is essential. But I also think it's very silly and it's fraught with some pitfalls for Republicans as well. I mean, look. Um, you know, last week, you know, the, the resolution failed uh, Anna Paulina Luna made some modifications to it, which got it to pass this week, you know, most notably getting rid of the $16 million fine. Uh, you know, the resolution said that Schiff spread false accusations that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia, that uh, he abused his, this, his trust by alleging that he had evidence of collusion. Well, I mean. First of all, everybody seems to forget the, the Trump Tower meeting back in June of 2016, where, you know, the camp, deputy campaign chairman, Rick Gates and uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner met with you know, a Russian lawyer who claimed to have the dirt on Hillary Clinton. So, you know, I'm a lawyer and I would say that's at least evidence of intent to collude. Uh, and then, you know, not long after, Paul Manafort, who was the campaign chairman for the Trump campaign, did share sensitive polling data uh, with the Russians, um, that also included information about key battleground states. And this was in the Mueller report and that that polling data and sensitive information could have been used by the Russians in their uh, influence campaign here in the US. So, I mean, to me, this was a legitimate investigation. And and I think if if the Republicans are going to do this, what happens if the House were to flip and the Democrats are in charge? Are they now going to be able, should they censure Kevin McCarthy because of the Benghazi committee? Because he came out saying that, you know, pretty much implied that the goal of the Benghazi Committee was to hurt Hillary Clinton's numbers in the race for president. Uh, You know, Congressman Comer, who chairs the Oversight Committee, is now investigating uh, a a supposed uh, Biden bribery probe and influence peddling by the Biden family. So if that turns up nothing, is he then subject to censure afterwards? You know, I think this is a real slippery slope and very dangerous and, and counterproductive for the American people.
0: We're, we're going to change the order up uh, in a little bit, but first, a word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and uh, naval uh, coverage. Uh, Dove, just want to get you to weigh in here briefly on uh, a little bit of the numbers that are coming out and, and your sense on where it is we have to be, and and really the social issues. I mean, honestly, as... Michael said, we really should be talking, or rather, right, paraphrase the young freshman member, we should be talking about systems and bullets and, you know, missiles and amphibs rather than all of this other, you know, messaging stuff, which is just done for base messaging purposes. I mean, it's, it's it, anyway, I mean, kind of give us your sense really quick on this, and we're changing the order a little bit. Patrick is normally very patient, uh, but we're going to go to him first because of the Narendra Modi meeting. Uh, go ahead.
2: Well, very quickly, first, uh, I should add that the NDAA on the House side uh, approved the uh, slickum the nuclear cruise missile, which the administration had killed. Uh, I think that's uh, an important signal. Um, secondly, before I get to the game playing, um, they did find uh, some uh, an additional three point eight, I think, billion is the number. It comes to something over six billion that they had. Uh, essentially overestimated costs uh, for what they were shipping to Ukraine. Uh, I kind of wonder why, the, you know, once you overestimate, but they seem to be doing it <laughs> again. Um, and it means they can send more to Ukraine right now without having to uh, go for the supplemental. And that may be why they're not going for it yet. Although I tend to agree with Michael that the sooner they go for it, the better it's gonna be, I think. Uh, and then of course uh, we've we've seen uh, Consternation on the part of supporters of Ukraine, uh, not just about ATACMS, but just generally about what's going on and why there isn't uh, any move on the part of the administration to do anything. In terms of the shenanigans, well, that's what they are. Uh, But you know what? You've got that kind of legislation that's tacked on. Uh, For years, this has been going on. I mean, I remember I'm an ancient mariner now, and so I remember when Congresswoman Patty Schroeder would literally add Christmas tree stuff uh, to the NDAA back in the 70s and that drove people crazy. Uh, Unfortunately, when you've got so many members, it's the largest, the House committee is the largest committee. I think it's about 60 members now. Uh, and and so, yeah, they're going to throw things out. And particularly uh, if you have a member that has some kind of B in his or her bonnet, they'll go along with it because it's it like you said, it politically plays to whichever base you're talking about. In the case of Schroeder, it was the Democratic base. Now it's the Republican base. Should they be doing this? Absolutely not. Will they continue to do this? Uh, Michael, correct me, but I suspect they will.
0: Michael. Does Dove need correcting?
2: Dove never
1: needs correcting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Dove, once again, you agilely stuck the landing. Ten. Let me shift gears a little bit and bring uh, Jim. Uh, into the discussion. Jim, big donor conference, obviously, uh, trying to raise as much money for Ukraine. Um, We're seeing defense contractors moving capability, Ryan Metal, BAE Systems starting to do work uh, and set up facilities in Ukraine so that Ukraine can take care of its own uh, defense needs and kind of move away from a hodgepodge at the Paris Air Show. uh, I had a couple of conversations about the, the challenges the Ukrainians have with so much donated equipment uh, and the headaches it's causing. From your standpoint, what are some of the takeaways from the donor conference, the new aid the administration's making over uh, available, and where we are on the offensive right now, right? Because the Ukrainians are making it clear that these are probing attacks, and it hasn't really committed its Western-trained forces uh, en masse yet. Sort of where do we stand from uh, as somebody who's got his fingers on the pulse?
3: I think where we are, where we were last week, uh, where we have been you know, watching the Ukrainian military probe, uh, looking for a weak point in the, in the Russian defense, uh, no one, whether Russian or Ukraine, has committed its reserves or a main thrust yet. Uh, this is still the beginning of a uh, process by Ukraine to find the right way in. Uh, I think what they're finding, and we've seen this build up over time, are very large minefields. Uh, and going through minefields is difficult, particularly when you don't have air superiority and you're out there uh, pretty much stranded uh, trying to get through minefields while you're being pummeled with artillery. So I think there's things like artillery duels that are going on and the Russians have lost uh, a lot of their artillery um, recently, uh, which is a, a great news. Uh, and so there is there are things happening, but there's not something that's going to catch the imagination uh, of last summer with uh, troops and uh tanks moving through and big towns being liberated, this type of thing. This is still early days. The first couple of days of this offensive, uh, such as it was a few weeks ago when it was announced, those first few days, we uh, the Ukraine military took some casualties in terms of Bradleys and uh, um, uh, some of the Leopard 2 uh, mine uh, vehicles uh, were lost in that first thrust. And so I think Ukraine did the right thing. Uh, they realized that this is going to be uh, harder uh, than they thought it would be. They pulled back to try to find another way of approaching these dug-in positions. And they're not going to be attrited uh, the way the Russians have been in the past, where they just kept going forward, going forward, and losing a lot of personnel and equipment as well. So the, so the Ukrainian uh, military, they're playing a smart game, but it's going to take time. Uh, and we've just got to be patient and let them do the right thing. So far, I haven't seen any big mistakes, certainly nothing that I would classify as a mistake or what other people uh, might as well. I think they're being very prudent and they're, they're playing a, uh, a weak hand um, in terms of logistics uh, very well. So let's see where it goes.
0: And what what about the donor conference and how advisable, you know, on this program, we've uh, often talked about the imperative of using Russian money, seized Russian monies in order to help rebuild Ukraine. There are some who argue that that sets a bad precedent and we shouldn't do that, that that money should be held in escrow and, you know, given to the Russian people uh, if and when um, they... Um, sort of come to their senses and move away from Putin and Putinism and his cronies. Um, How advisable is it to use that money? And should it be deployed? How should it be deployed? um, Given the Atlantic Alliance very much wants and, and, you know, the the Western Alliance wants to do as much as it can to help Ukraine?
3: Well, I would definitely use it. uh, And I would use it right now to replace a lot of the power stations and other aspects of uh, the U- of Ukraine that's been destroyed by Russian uh, missiles and shelling, you know, over the past year, we've seen this uh, and those power grid issues and things right now that have been destroyed by the Russians. And so, this Russian money should be used to rebuild those and to strengthen uh, the Ukraine power grid. So, I, I that's a, just one example. I think there's a lot of other things that uh, have been destroyed by by targeting uh, targeting by the by the Russians against Ukraine that I think are fair targets for using their money uh, to uh, to repair. So yeah, I, there's no reason to, that I see to hold back on Russian money. I think we should, we should spend it and to help Ukraine right now deal with this problem. But I think the donors conference, I was glad to see that it was at such a senior level. I'm glad that the Secretary of State was there. Uh, the EU is gonna be shouldering a lot of this. Uh, and so I think they heard some EU plans while they were uh, in London, uh, and so the work has already begun. You know, this is something that uh, you don't have to wait until the end of the fighting to actually begin to work to reconstruct. But I think what's most important is to organize the effort to make sure that um, uh, there's a timing aspect that is met in terms of you know how how do you how do you phase in uh, the repair and the recovery? What's top priority? Uh, what can wait? Uh, there's a lot of thorny uh, infrastructure issues that have to be handled by the folks that go in and do the reconstruction. But but one thing I think that uh, we're hearing more about, and I think this is critical, is that the private sector is going to have to have a big role to play um, in uh, in helping. Ukraine move into the future as well. So companies are going to not want to go and invest in Ukraine as their recovery takes off, but they're not going to want to invest if there's a lot of corruption, if there's still problems in the civil society, or there's not the the legal aspect or the accounting aspect that that matches what happens in the West. You know, we saw that when we were doing a lot of the recovery in Central and Eastern Europe uh, back in the 1990s. And so I think as we do reconstruction right now, it's not just brick and mortar, you know, it's also these rules and regulations and, and laws that need to be changed to be business friendly. Uh, and they've got to get corruption right. under control. So that's what I'm hoping that we're going to see. But uh, in these reconstruction conferences, as they happen in Europe, is it's not just focusing on building new new structures, but also what changes does Ukraine need to make to make sure that the private sector can play a strong role in the recovery?
0: Uh, and I should uh, point out, right, that the EU is leaning toward extending membership uh, to the country in part because it is cleaning up corruption and doing all of this stuff to show that it's a good steward uh, of the taxpayer uh, resources. Uh, Dove, you've got your hand up uh, because obviously the United Kingdom supplied storm shadow missiles. They're among the most precise uh, cruise missiles in the world uh france i think is going to follow soon with scalp uh, weapons right that's the french uh, uh version of the weapon how is this proven to be game changing from your standpoint but it look because it does look like the ukrainians may have made some gains that people are not yet discussing in full even if one of them uh, was revealed recently and the ukrainians are not commenting
2: on it Well, they're not commenting on the uh, blowing up of the Changar Bridge, but there are videos you can see on the internet of the bridge getting blown up. And in fact, the Russians have blamed Britain and said that this is all Britain's fault. Uh, The Brits, as we know, have been up front ahead of us uh, with these sorts of missiles, which, you know, ATACMS is is a similar missile with similar range. Um, They were ahead of us with tanks. Um, they' they they were ahead of us with the personnel carriers if I, uh, if I recall correctly um what this shows is these kinds of systems really do make a difference and uh once again and I know I've, I've beaten this dead horse many times before, but the administration is just too damn slow and and what this uh uh strike against the uh the Changar Bridge tells us is if you give the Ukrainians the um, the best weapons that are out there, they're going to make the best use of them. And I suspect that uh, as uh, this, ca- and I agree totally with Jim, we've talked about it before. Uh, these, uh, a counteroffensive starts off slowly, but it sure would help if more material would were delivered to the Ukrainians. And they're still talking about training being month months away and delivery being months away for, for aircraft and so on. And you just have to wonder what is going on here. Jim, we're going to lose you uh, in a minute. Is there any last thought
0: you have before we turn to Patrick to talk about uh, India and uh, the developments in Asia?
3: Only thing I, I want to say is to just to put stomp what Dov was saying in terms of logistics for this uh, this offensive my great concern is that uh, there's not enough of a bench, there's not enough of, of pre-positioned U- U.S. and Western equipment that can roll in quickly to Ukraine to make up for battlefield losses. Uh, you know, they lost a lot of Bradleys, they've lost some, uh, some leopards, and, um, and, and, you know, we, we can't, we can't uh, just watch the Ukraine military attrit itself and not be able to very quickly send in replacements uh, for tanks and other bits of equipment um, right. as it's destroyed. And so I, I just want to say, I'm hoping that I'm sure the, the West and the US is looking at that, but, I, but we really need to be on the ball there because if they can't have logistic support, if they do get a breakthrough, there won't be enough to send through the gap because they would have used right. it all up making the gap. So that's a concern that I do have.
0: Jim, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Um, and a quick reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our new AirPower podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace with J.J. Gertler and uh, me, Patrick, Uh, Narendra Modi and uh, the takeaways, obviously uh, Modi's second visit uh, to the United States. Second time he's addressing Congress. That's you know in Winston Churchill territory there uh, to address joint sessions of Congress. Uh, both of the nations were talking about their skepticism and concerns with China. India doesn't have allies, but we are becoming a partner plus maybe, uh, both talked up the fact that they're democracy you know that we're democracies and indeed uh, India prides itself on being the world's largest democracy at 1.4 billion people even if people accuse it of being an illiberal democracy. I, I can't help but mention that uh, Vivek Raghavanshi, my former colleague uh, and our bureau chief uh, in India when I was defense news editor was unfortunately arrested and charged with uh, espionage. Um, something that you know anybody who knows Vivek uh, doesn't believe, rather sees somebody who was a, a journalist who uh, would occasionally take a skeptical eye to what the government was, was doing. Uh, from your standpoint, what are the key takeaways?
4: Prime Minister Modi's state visit was a big success, I think, for both India and the United States. This is a strategic bet by the Biden administration. This relationship is only going to get deeper and more consequential as they move forward. It's not about the personality of Modi and his BJP party and what it's done to kind of alienate uh, Muslims, for instance, and more than alienate the rest and uh, clamp down on on some freedoms. Um, They both share a common strategic interest about balancing Chinese power. Um, It's not that India wants to be uh, allied with the United States. They want to be an independent pole in the Indian Ocean and South Asia being able to stand up on their own. They need U.S. technology desperately. And the Biden administration is moving in ways that were unthinkable, 10 years ago even, on the defense side with this uh, production, co-production of uh, a GE engine, um, with uh, the drones that can be the Sky Guardian, Sea Guardian, uh, high altitude, long endurance drones that are gonna be so critical for India's frontiers, both on land and at sea. Um, An innovation incubator, an accelerator of uh, defense technology, drawing on commercially available technologies. All of these things are going to have to go through a lot of wickets and guidance and ITAR regulations. But at the same time, um, there's bipartisan support and strong support for helping India help us and stand up to China.
0: How do we address the illiberal democracy element of this? I mean, President Biden has staked his presidency on the importance of democracies banding together, uh, delivering a common voice and a common message. Uh, France, one of the oldest of democracies, has dialed back on that rhetoric. I just came from Paris, uh, where I was told, look, Macron got so much pushback from uh, former colonies uh, in Africa, many of which are something less than democracies. Uh, and so he's changed uh, his rhetoric. We see illiberal democracies on the rise in, in Europe. Um, um, you know, the ranks of Hungary and Poland could be joined by others uh, in that Central European belt. And you have Modi, who is trying to craft India into kind of a Hindu nationalist populist model, which is, it, it was there is there discordance here? And is there a messaging that actually the Chinese can try to take advantage of Pointing to American hypocrisy.
4: Well, Vaga, you're pointing to some of the weak seams of the U.S.-India relationship, and you know you're absolutely right on all those points. At the same time, you got to come back to what's the strategic objective here? Uh, what are the alternatives uh, to China and Russia? And India, with 1.4 billion people, is a long-term alternative. It's moved from the 10th to the fifth largest economy just under Modi's leadership. Um, again, it's not about Modi, although he's up for re-election uh, next year. It's still uh, it, it's he's the man we have to deal with, and and the president's dealing with him. You did not hear the word democracy much, though, in this trip. Uh, two great nations, uh, new dynamic, new chapter, booming, most consequential. A lot of other superlatives uh, were were bandied about, um, and Modi uh, tried to offer that he was all about uh, that democracy is in their DNA. Well, it may be in the Indian DNA, but it doesn't seem to be in the BJP's uh, you know p- policy priorities. So it's a real challenge for India.
0: I mean, I should also point out and I should have mentioned Turkey being one of the best uh, examples of an illiberal democracy indeed in uh, the Atlantic Alliance uh, uh, and on you know a very critical piece of real estate uh, where uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has sort of systemically unwound the state. So much so, in fact, that I think his uh, opponents will have trouble getting uh, elected again. Dub, did you want to weigh into that really briefly? Because I want to go back to Patrick to ask. Yeah, yeah. well,
2: I I, I think Patrick is right that uh, in practice, the administration, at least with respect to India, uh, has decided that it just cannot harp on democracy when it needs India vis-a-vis China. The problem is it's okay maybe if you want to beat up on Hungary. But. If you look at Poland, as you mentioned, and particularly Turkey, you know, given what's going on in Ukraine and and the issue of what happens in the Black Sea, Turkey has become every bit as important now as it was during the Cold War. And so uh, the administration needs to have a consistent policy, not so much beating up on people because of human rights violations. But uh, very much because we now have a a situation that is increasingly similar to the Cold War, except on two fronts, that we simply have to look the other way when it's necessary, as we're doing with and rightly so with India.
0: Uh, Patrick, Blinken went to China. Uh, Good news is he swung through the donor conference, but he went to China. He met with Xi Jinping, even if he met, he was greeted at the airport with by some lackeys some powerful messaging, obviously, on the part of the Chinese. What, what did he really accomplish, ultimately? Right. I mean, the United States is always trying to be the responsible partner, the adult in the relationship. Um, on the other hand, it does seem like a little bit of a reward for bad behavior. The Chinese cut off all links after we shot down their spy balloon, and we are now going over there to, to dial down tensions. There are reports that the Chinese are, have sent gunpowder to the Russians, I think we all know they're doing more than just sending gunpowder to the Russians. Uh, And, you know, right after Blinken meets with Xi, uh, the president called uh, Xi um, a dictator, which put the uh, Chinese in a tizzy again. What did this trip concretely accomplish? And what is the administration's messaging game here? Because it seems a bit discordant.
4: Well, there, there are a whole power play going on in this uh, cold piece, if not cold war, between US China uh, and between uh, Xi and the Biden administration. But the Biden administration has been trying to get the diplomacy uh, back on track, meaning more senior level meetings going back and forth between. Uh, each country before Xi Jinping and uh, President Biden are scheduled to meet in San Francisco when the United States hosts the APEC summit in Um, mid-November. There's been a four-month hiatus, essentially, since the spy balloon uh, incident uh, surfaced. And um, now it's back on track, presumably, in the sense that you're going to see Chen Gong, the foreign minister, come here to the United States. You're going to see Treasury Secretary Yellen and Commerce Secretary Raimondo, uh, Climate Envoy, uh, you know, uh, John Kerry, all probably head to uh, China or have discussions with their counterparts as uh, setting up whatever agreements might be possible um, for the two leaders to uh, articulate by the end of the year, mostly around uh, economic issues, presumably. But the differences here are so deep. Nothing has changed fundamentally. And indeed, uh, if nothing else, uh, the gunpowder you mentioned, that's not just a report. I mean, uh, that's pretty hard evidence that the Chinese state-owned Chinese company, so it's not some private industry uh, entity, uh, sent enough gunpowder for 80 million rounds of uh, russian ammo to be used in ukraine and that's just one instance of how china is providing lethal assistance while pretending to be a neutral pretending not to provide that assistance um yet they could be doing a lot more we know that but they're doing quite a bit and they're hiding it and that's the problem all along the way whether you're dealing with you know what what they're doing in cuba um or or what they're doing uh, with respect to taiwan where they want the united states Uh, And they got from Secretary Blinken what Xi Jinping wanted to hear. Secretary Blinken had to endure, you know, withering hours of diplomacy with his counterpart on on Sunday, then three and a half more hours with uh, Wang Yi before he had the 35 minutes uh, with Xi Jinping. And uh, Blinken said, uh, the United States does not support the independence of Taiwan. Um, That was a reassurance uh, that you will not hear often in American speeches, but In Beijing, it was a direct uh, promise, essentially, from the Biden administration, we will not support the independence of Taiwan. Now, the, the, you know. But in fairness, right, that has long been
0: an American position.
4: And that is the, the that is, right. That is the US, that is the long standing US position. US has never had a different position from that. Um, And so it's just stating one aspect of the one China policy, quote unquote, um, that the Chinese most wanted to hear. Uh, there's another asterisk, another part of the one China policy that says, and he did say this as well. Um, we we do not want any unilateral change through coercion or force. Um, and so the assumption here is that if China uses coercion or force against Taiwan, that promise about no independence goes away, um, or at least potentially goes away. So it's 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 predicated on this all both sides working for a peaceful resolution. Um, And if China jumps the gun, literally, and tries to coerce uh, Taiwan into the mainland's rule, uh, we will uh, not just impose costs, we're going to be involved in that fight, at least under the Biden administration. What happens in the future? Who knows? It has everybody in the region worried. And that's why this diplomacy was still important. It still reassured the world that the Bali leaders meeting framework, while it's riddled with holes, while there are deep disagreements, sharp disagreements, Neither of those big powers really wants war. They want to get their way through other means. Let me me just
0: ask you one uh, question. Now that we know that the Chinese are sending weaponry there, and indeed, right, I mean, the Indians are helping the Russians by buying their energy. Uh, You know, the Turks are helping them by you know, sending consumer electronics there. Uh, that's going through countries uh, all over uh, the world. Uh, and obviously the countries in the Gulf are giving a financial shelter uh, to Russians uh, and their money. What, what does the United States do having given, you know, made threats about, well, you know, it would be very bad if the Chinese do it. What, what are they going to do? Have a stern talking to um, with the Chinese? I mean, what 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 is it we will do when, they start to actually send munitions. They could be sending train loads of munitions right now. They could be sending train loads of munitions right now, and we would not disclose it or might not disclose it.
4: They could be training troops in uh, in Cuba, right? They could be using it as a second site and upgrade it uh, without being told. Yeah, I mean, and that's why Congress, by the way, is demanding a fuller account, by the way, what China's been doing uh, on that front in, with a spy balloon and in Cuba, I, as well as on what they're doing to back Uh, Russia in the war. I think all of these are real concerns, and um, the Biden administration, as Secretary Blinken suggested, is clear-eyed, meaning they know what they're dealing with in China, but they also know we have to have some type of stability in this relationship. We cannot just let it veer off into conflict. We have to fight and engage uh, through diplomacy, through information warfare, through economic uh, competition. And that's where a lot of this competition is centered. It's centered very much on the high technology area. And that, there, one thing I heard this week when I hosted Nate Fick, the Ambassador-at-Large for Cyberspace and Digital Policy at State Department, even as the Biden administration generally was hosting in San Francisco, an important conference on artificial intelligence, Nate Fick said at Hudson this week that we have less than one year to try to get our arms around some kind of governance on AI because When our four U.S. companies that are in the lead of generative AI um, lose that lead to some other actors, including Chinese, um, watch out, watch that space. Very dangerous things could happen.
0: But Michael, let me uh, go to you, Dev. I'm going to come to you uh, in a second on what's going on in Israel because obviously there are developments, and also you wrote a great piece in the Hill about the link between the Abraham Accords uh, and the administration warming relations with Iran, or at least neutralizing, or whatever, whatever it's going to be. But Michael, really, really quickly, how are how did members how are members responding to the Modi visit, uh, the democracy's theme, and sort of what's next uh, on? China and uh, the administration on what they want to see.
1: Well, um, what he gave his address yesterday and early votes this morning, members of Congress you know, flew out pretty quickly. So I really haven't talked to many about it, but you know, overall there's a recognition that uh, they're obviously an important partner to us to, to counter China. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I think we, you know, we, as we talked about earlier, I think we make some mistakes when it comes to looking at every country wanting to, uh, see the world and uh, and their people the same way we do. I mean, again, we won the Cold War because we had a lot of friends. Uh, India is important to us uh, as our friend. They may not do everything we want them to do, but it's better that they be aligned with us than aligned with the Russians. Uh, they're certainly never gonna align with the Chinese, but it's a mistake I think we're making throughout the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, that we uh, need to get to yes and figure out how we're gonna find more partners and allies uh, at, because that's the Chinese weakness, that's the Russian weakness, they don't have friends. They don't have partners. They don't have allies. And we're doing a lot to help them gain more access and more allies in our own backyard. Dov,
0: uh, bring us home, uh, Israel and uh, Iran. And what are the implications? Right. I mean, you've noted that America's or, or Washington, or I should say the administration's drive uh, to de-escalate the relationship with Iran. Iran obviously seizing some shipping uh, in the Strait of Hormuz and in uh, the Gulf. Uh, and you you contend that could potentially jeopardize the Abraham Accord. Talk to us about yeah, that and a little bit of the unrest in Israel that's cost the lives uh, of uh, several soldiers.
2: Yes. Well, l- let me uh, just add a word about India. I think one mistake that we could make is to expect India really to give up not so much non-alignment. India now sees itself as a major Pole in a multipolar world. And because of that, uh, there are going to be limits to what they do with us. Now, they don't want to be tied up with China, but they're going to continue to reach out all over because they see themselves as a separate pole. And as long as we understand that, we'll make a lot of progress with those folks. Now, on the uh, Iran business, uh, you know, the, there's talk, more and more talk, that. Uh, What we essentially are prepared to do is to uh, have an informal agreement with Tehran. They will uh, uh, be able to stay at their 60 percent enrichment, which is frankly a hop, skip and jump to having a nuclear weapon. Uh, You can have one in a couple of months or three or four months. If if you're at 60 percent enrichment, you go to 90 percent pretty quickly. Um, But the the other thing that in many ways is, is even more worrying is that we would allow the South Koreans to unfreeze funds $7 billion worth uh, that are uh, held in South Korea that that are Iranian funds. And what we're arguing apparently is, well, we're not going to let the government get its hands on it. We're going to give that money to organizations that are humanitarian and so on. The problem is money is fungible. And that the money that we will be giving for humanitarian purposes may well be money that Iran would have spent itself, in which case that $7 billion could wind up going to Hezbollah and the the Houthis and God knows who else, uh, the the militias in Iraq. Um, And, you know, (laughs) this is just a major problem because it could destabilize the region and it's going to scare the Israelis and the Saudis. And, you know, we're saying, and, and uh, Tony Blinken, Secretary Blinken, went to Saudi Arabia hoping the Saudis would somehow uh, sign up to the Abraham Accords. Well, you know, the, the first of all, there's been so much trouble with the Palestinians and uh, Israeli soldiers shot and settlers shot, and a Palestinian town was devastated by settlers, and it's still not clear uh, how they're going to be punished. Well, all of that infuriates the Saudis, particularly King Salman. And he said, I'm not going to go and formalize relations with Israel until Israel does something with the Palestinians. Well, with this government, nothing's gonna be done with the Palestinians. So you've got this problem that the Saudis and Israelis will essentially stay where they are. The Israelis will have, you know, Netanyahu announced, uh, if this informal deal happens, I, I can live with it, but I reserve the right to do whatever I wanna do, which in other words means attacking Iran. And dragging us in probably. So we're working at cross purposes with ourselves. Not to, uh, We've been talking this entire program about how we talk about democracy and then, uh, you know, uh, essentially ignore uh, illiberal democracy. Uh, well, in the Middle East, we're talking about the Abraham Accords and essentially undermining them at the same time.
0: Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, Absolute pleasure each week having you guys on. Uh, Have a great day, a great weekend, a great week. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Uh, And a very special thanks to all of you for joining us and Bell for their very generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Uh, And please uh, do check out our uh, podcast on Sunday, where the Business Roundtable team will be coming together after uh, a week at the Paris Air Show to give you guys a take on what the most important storylines were. Hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks very much and have a great day.